Oh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you not out of a tradition, not out of a routine, but out of true need. We need the wisdom that you offer to us. As you have said, that as long as we don't be people that are double-minded, that we trust that you give wisdom, you have given it in your word, and your spirit can illuminate that truth into our hearts as we work our way through your word. And so we pray for that, that today. We pray for your wisdom, your, your spirit's influence in our lives, and that you would uh, use this teaching today in such a way that we, the people of God, would bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are back to our study of Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life by Paul Tripp. Um, the Doctrine of Sin, he had it done in one chapter. We were breaking it up into two parts because it really, uh, I didn't want to miss out and try and jam everything into one. We couldn't have gotten through it and still had the, at least for me anyways, I could not have handled that much information and left with it partitioned in my mind sufficiently enough for my ability to recall it. So we did. We put it in two parts. And in addition, uh, normally uh, we follow each doctrine that we study by uh, how that doctrine plays out in everyday life. Well, that is going to be a three-parter. So we, this, this doctrine of sin is going to be a total of five parts. Um, I think it's valuable to not go through it too fast. I think if we as a people of God understand the doctrine of sin, we're a little bit more prepared for the, un, the understanding of the doctrine of sanctification. So with that, Mark, uh, wherever you want to start, let's go ahead and start our reading. I want to return to David's confession, Psalm 51, because in his confession we find one of the Bible's best definitions of what sin is and what sin does. This foundational definition of sin is expressed in three provocative words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Psalm 51, that's, uh, we know that's the psalm written by David. And we can appreciate his candor with God. Now let's, let's dig in and try and figure out why has he broken that down into three different uh, provocative words that he has chosen to use. So let's continue on with our reading. In his expression of grief over his sin, David uses three words that capture the nature of this thing called sin, transgression, iniquity, and sin. Each word carries a unique nuance that is designed to flesh out our understanding of what sin is and what sin does. Let's begin with the word iniquity. Iniquity is moral impurity. This word alerts us to the fact that sin is deeper than just behavior. Yes, sin results in doing what is wrong in God's eyes, but sin doesn't begin with behavior. Sin is a condition, an inescapable state of being that causes us to rebel against God's authority and to break his law. So I'm not a sinner because I sin. I'm a sinner because it's what I am. See the difference there? We sin because that's our identity as sinners. Now, we have been saved in Christ, 
but we still have that stain of sin in us. So let's continue on. Note David's words found later in his confession, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, I, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is confessing that his problem is not only that he did that he did what was sinful, but even more significantly that he is a sinner. Now pay, now pay careful attention to what I am about to say next. David doesn't have a problem with sin only when he does something wrong, because sin is a part of his very nature. Sin was as much a part of David's nature when he came into this world as the fact that being a biological male is part of his nature. He is not a man because on occasion he does male things. No, he does things that only a male can do because he is, by nature, a man. David is confessing that sin is a condition he inherited at birth. It is as much a part of his spiritual constitution as the physical characteristics that he inherited from his parents. Oh, wait. Um... Sorry, David is confessing that sin is a condition he inherited at birth. It is as much a part of his spiritual con constitution as the physical characteristics that he inherited from his parents are part of his physical constitution. You know, as I was listening to what he was saying, and he's going to go on and talk about this even further, but we as Christians cannot, we know the silliness, the absolute foolishness of saying, I am... I'm a sinner, but I'm identifying as sinless today. Are you tracking me with what our culture says about our gender identity? The foolishness of that statement to the Christian. I'm a sinner, but I'm identifying. Like, like somehow that changed my sin status. I'm identifying as sinless, and so you have to see me as sinless. Everything I do is sinless because I've chosen to, be, to identify as sinless. That's, that's craziness. And we, we see that played out in this argument, and he's going to continue this as it relates to our identity and sin and how that affects the fact that we do, in fact, sin. So let's continue on. I need to double-check. Are we on the third uh, paragraph after the quotation from yes. Psalm 51? Yep. Okay, thank you. Consider the words of Jeremiah. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard's his spots? Then also you can do not... Um, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. It's really worded difficultly there. He's going to bear it out. Okay. Bear with it. Yeah. Uh, this passage powerfully presents the implications of declaring that sin is not just wrong behavior, but wrong behavior that exists because sin is a matter of our nature as human beings. I cannot escape my sin, which is part of who I constitutionally am, any more than a black-skinned Ethiopian has the power to alter the beauty of God's design and his physical appearance. It is just as impossible for people who are by nature sinners, iniquity, to become good in God's eyes without divine intervention as it is for a leopard to decide that he no longer wants to be spotted. You could shave that cat down to his skin and it would grow a new pelt that is still spotted. Spottedness is wired into the nature of that animal, and so he is hopeless to relieve himself of his spots. So it is with the tragedy of sin. It is not just what we do. It is who we are. I use the word hopeless above. This is where the, this biblical concept of sin as our nature should leave us. We have no power whatsoever to manage, control, 
minimize or escape our sin because it is not just what we occasionally do, but it is who we are. However, when it comes to the condition of sin, hopelessness is the only doorway to hope. If we are ever going to seek and celebrate the rescuing, forgiving, transforming, and delivering grace of God through his son Jesus, we need to abandon any hope in our ability to defeat sin. We may briefly harness a particular behavior, but we have no power to cleanse ourselves of the inequity that is part of our nature. We are not those who occasionally do sin, but who have the power of self-renewal and self-reformation. No, we are sinners hopelessly trapped in our inequity apart from the amazing grace of God's intervening, redeeming love. So the question that I'm posing, and I've actually left out a word, I want to, it's an important word, so I want to read it with this word added, and I'll share, share with you where I add it. The question is, as Christians, what happens to our view of self when we fail to recognize that our nature, even after becoming new creations in Christ Jesus, is still morally impure, stained, adulterated, mixed with moral impurities. I'm trying to draw out the greater visual under picture of what's gone on or what is the status, you might say, of our condition that, we, that will not be, and the word that needs to be inserted in there, completely removed in this physical life. Again, what happens to our view of self when we fail to recognize that our identity is sinners. And um, looks like Wayne's got it back there, Mark, if you want to uh, let him have the mic. Yes, we, be, we become capricious. Expound. Expound, if you don't mind. Explain further. For capricious, uh, in other words, um, we're, we're pretending to be something that we're not. Hmm. And we're pretending. We're, we're not coming to grips with the fact that we really are deep inside. Uh, sinners. We're in denial. In denial. I like that. Uh, the, a word that I grabbed onto when it came culturally cute or acceptable, part of our word vocabulary, is we're posers. We become posers. We, we try and say that we're this and we're really not this. We're that. So that, that's good. Anybody else? How does this, when we fail to grasp our nature, as sinners, how does that affect our view of self? Rob Boy? I think this is a tough one because our identity is in Christ. He's not a sinner, yet we sin. So, and so were some of you, right? 1 Corinthians 6. So if we... I think we have to be careful that we realize that we sin as those who are saints and yet that's not our identity anymore true our but ident- i want to say there's a there's a tension there oh yeah there's definitely a tension that we there's are tension. we are still sinners by way of what we do we all know that our identity is in christ but if we fail to see that that stain of sin that which we were removed out of mm-hmm. Then what, then what happens to our view of self? Well, and so then if we view ourselves the same way we did before we were saved, then we view ourselves as uh, sinners instead of, instead of saints. If my identity is in Christ, then when I sin, I'm not acting the way that I 
according to my identity, where prior to being born again, I was acting according to my identity. So in Romans 7, when you have the flesh that hasn't been redeemed, battling against the spirit that has been redeemed, you have this body of death that, that you're in, um, and that flesh remains uh, in, in sin. You know, it's, so I'm sinning, and I, th- I think it's uh, a difficult thing to navigate, okay, well, is that still my identity? Or is the fact that my identity in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit what navigates me through the sin? Um, versus, hey, I'm a sinner, that's, that's my identity. Um, it, it, it's... A, I guess I'm setting up more the dilemma than anything. Sure. Let me get to Gerald real quick, and then uh, I want to speak to this. I, I was just just a couple thoughts. Um, I, I as an as a Christian, as someone identified with Christ, I am not a I am not a sinner. I'm a saint who sometimes sins. Okay, but that's, that said, I'm still infected with this sin in my flesh. So the way I look at it is, what that, mean, what that means practically is, if, if I sin or if I see a, another Christian sin, I should never be shocked by that. Mm. Because I still have that nature to sin. I still, you know, I still have that. But my tenor of my life, my identity is in Christ and in who he is and and. and you know, the word calls me a saint, and if that's the truth of my of who I am, you know, at the core, then then, like I said, it, like like was mentioned already, there is tension there. But but my the tenor of my life is toward is toward you know wanting to, be, to become more godly, wanting to be more like Jesus. It's good, Pete. Not sure if I have the attribution right. I think it was <clears throat> Martin Luther, but the uh, Latin phrase um, "simul justus et peccator." So, simultaneously, we are uh, we are justified and yet carry carry this sin. We have we have imperfections. We execute sin. We practice, or we we do sin, and yet we continue to be justified at the same time. At least for now. I I think um, I know Rob Roy went to Romans seven, but I immediately thought of Romans six. Um, we are no longer slaves to sin. Um, so, just thinking about that slavery state. But I think my guess is where maybe and correct me if I'm wrong. The the carefulness with the tension here is uh, not to become puffed up or think that because my identity is in Christ that I am yet like Christ. Um, but at the same time, it can be, as a Christian, very easy to get into some Catholic-style self-flagellation. Mm. I am horrible. I'm disgusting. I am. And it's like, no, my identity is in Christ, even though I don't live up to that identity on a daily basis or even hourly basis. And so um, balancing that tension between I am chief of sinners, and yet, despite all of that, still at the end of the day and in the eyes of God, my identity will be in Christ. And so 
I think practically, my guess is maybe where Rob Roy is trying to guide us here is that it's easy sometimes to get so focused on the sin without where you're almost um, not doing Christ justice in that recognizing your new identity because of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Um, so that is my attempt at trying to interpret the discussion. It's good. It's, it's a healthy discussion because ultimately our identity is in Christ. That's a theological statement that we hold on to. We stand justified by Christ. We stand justified in Christ. We are not seen. How, how, let me put it this way. When God views us, he sees us through Christ's righteousness. So we stand in a perfect identity. At the same time, I am sinner, sufferer, and saint. It's the reality of my life here on this side of eternity. And that's just what I'm trying to make sure that we understand. I have that the understanding of our identity in Christ has been conflated before in, in trying to work with people to see, work through the process of sanctification. They will not, not allow any other construct in their mind then I am in Christ perfect. Well, the problem is then, I can't go anywhere with you. The Holy Spirit has no room to work in the fact that you don't see, that you, you, see, you stand from a perfectionist standpoint in how you view your own behavior. That stain still remains in you. It will be removed in glorification, but you still have a pro. You are not controlled by it, but you have a propensity towards sin. If you fail to see that, then you will be like the person that I used to wrestle with on the PD. And she would not have anything to do with recognizing that she was a sinner because she was saved in Christ. And she treated people horribly, but she didn't see her sinfulness. She got stuck in, her, in the legal standing and identification that comes with it and did not see the practical identity that, that we struggle with on this side of eternity. Just something that I, I want to make sure that we, we are conscientious of. Let's continue on. And I, I remember... That's great. That, that's wonderful. Thank you for pointing that out. And Rob Roy, thank you for pointing that out. I mean, we, we, our identity ultimately is in Christ. We stand legally justified. We are saved. You want to, yeah, let's get Rob Roy in there. Often I see sinners make some right observations but then they come to the wrong conclusion. Hmm. And then as Christians, we look and say, hmm, their observation's wrong because they came to a wrong conclusion. But their observation could potentially be right, and then we take that off the board. Our identity is in Christ. We are saints. The question is, what is our identity? Um, is it in what we do now, or in who has bought us with a price? 
when you're talking about the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil, when we talk about the deeds of the flesh um, versus the fruits of the spirit, right? So what's our motivation for following the law, love for Christ, the fact that he identified with us? He became one who took sin on him in order to identify with us so that now we can identify with him um, as being sinless in that we have a new nature. God has granted us power, though uh, not reprieve yet from the presence of sin, but we've given the power over sin. We've said that's who we used to be. That doesn't mean that we don't act some ways um, sinfully, but you have that distinction between the spirit and the flesh. So at the heart of it, if I make the observation that um, I am sinless in Christ, that's a correct observation. If I make the conclusion that, well, anything that I do in the flesh is sinless, that's a wrong observation. But I believe the correct observation that we have a new nature, that we are in Christ, that he has redeemed us from sin, that in our spirit, though our flesh walks differently, that Romans 7 battle, I, I think it's important to understand that sinless identity in Christ in order for us to battle sin. And that's the only concern I have with trying to recognize that we have sin and somehow changing our identity and putting us back to an identity that we don't have anymore. No, I, I could appreciate that, Rob Roy. In, in nuancing it, uh, it might be more, help, more helpful to say we fall back into an old identity of sin. Um, in some sense, I'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll just we'll continue. On. Go, go ahead, Gerald. You want to jump in there? When you were mentioning that that tension, I was I went to First John one seven or one six. It says, um, John says, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And I was thinking about just that when we when we sin as Christians, we're not practicing the truth, mm. right? It doesn't mean that the truth doesn't exist, but it. No. It's just a recognition of, that we're not, in that moment, we're not practicing what's true about us. And maybe that's the, the one connector of the two thoughts. It's good. All right, let's continue on. Transgression. Transgression is another explanatory word for sin. To transgress is to knowingly and willingly cross boundaries that our an authority has set. When we transgress, we trespass into a place God never designed for us to go. Imagine you are looking Imagine you are looking for a parking place on a busy city street and you see an open spot, but you also see a no parking sign there. When you park there anyway, you have transgressed. The word transgression points us to the high-handed rebellion of sin. Sin is a rejection of God's authority and his law, setting yourself up as your authority and writing your own laws. 
Transgression is choosing to disobey God because there is something more important to me than loving, serving, and obeying God. What this means is that sin is much more than breaking an abstract set of regulations that has been passed down to us from God. Sin is a breaking of relationship with God that then leads us to break his commands. Sin is a relational transgression that always produces a moral transgression. If you love God above all else, then you will keep his commands. Consider the Ten Commandments. The first three commands are about honor and worship of God. The point is, if you don't keep the first three commands, you won't have a prayer of keeping the next seven. The Bible speaks of transgression not just as a rebellion against a moral code, but as a rebellion against God himself. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible helps us to understand the seriousness of our rebellion is to characterize it as spiritual adultery. Consider the strong and stinging words of God through the prophet Jeremiah as he confronts Israel with her sins. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense to conceal the real facts, motives, or sentiments, declares the Lord. This passage is raw and hard to read. Every sin is an act of vertical unfaithfulness. Sin is adultery in the most profound heart level. We were created to live in a lifelong committed love relationship with our Creator that would then shape everything we think, desire, choose, say, and do. Sin is about forsaking our allegiance to God and offering the deepest allegiance of our hearts to other lovers. 1 John 2.15 captures this well. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Our hearts are always ruled and our lives shaped by the love of something. And it needs to be said that spiritual adultery is not just about loving bad things. No, love of even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a heart-ruling thing. Explain, how does a good thing become a heart-ruling thing? Well, it's listed there. No, love of even a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a heart-ruling thing. How do you know if something is a heart-ruling thing in your life? That's a neat statement he made, but I need more of a concrete I think of the word. A concrete rubric to, to determine it. So how do you know when a a good thing has become a bad thing or a heart ruling thing? 
I would say when you find yourself thinking about it a lot and thinking about it more than God. Okay, so it gets in the way of, of what we're called to do as far as uh, thinking about God above all. I was going to say something uh, similar in that uh, it may be uh, the first thing you think of when you wake up mm. and uh, maybe the last thing you think about as you're falling asleep, you know, um, in those quiet periods, those are the things that uh, come to mind. Um, and then there's the classic example of would you um, sin to get it uh, or to keep it or... There you go. That's the, that's the tangible that I was looking for. That's what I need, that level of concreteness. If you're willing to sin to get whatever, whatever it, is, it is, or you're willing to sin when you don't get it, then you, knew, you know it's a heart-ruling thing, even a good thing. Let me give you an example. There is a study out there. There's a, a book out there done by an author, and it, it's, it's biblical. It's called um, Love and Respect. The challenge with that study is, and in speaking to people who have gone through that, the study goes something like this. If my wife would only respect me, it would be easy for me, easier for me to love her, or the vice versa. So it beca- instead of love be- being something that you sacrificially give, it's an obligation on the partner. You've taken a good thing like love or respect and you demand it from your partner, which is sinful. God says, yes, this is the normal part. This is what a look up, marriage would look like. But we are sinners and we fail. I'll say it this way. We, we fail in our sinfulness to live out that true understanding of marriage. And to demand that they do that is sinful. You've got to allow God, you need to point out the error in a loving way. You need to walk alongside them as they willfully want to stop the sin. But to demand it, you can now see that this has become something has good, has become something ruling my heart by way of demand, and now it is something bad. So sin is the judge of that. Um, again, the book itself, Love and Respect, there's nothing wrong with it. It's how people miss, how miss they mistake it or misapply it. Misuse. Misuse. There you go. Any thoughts? Go ahead, Pete. I was just going to, um, another way of putting what, what I believe Glenda and Rob Roy were both saying is that all idols demand sacrifices. And so perhaps you know that mm-hmm. it's an idol in your life when you see what it is you're willing to sacrifice huh. to get it. Okay. Sacrifice in the way of you're removing right. something that is good and godly. Right. If you're going to, so to, to, to put it as Rob Roy did, you know, if you're willing to sin to get it, so what are you sacrificing? Are you sacrificing what's been described, what we just read here about your love of God and the obedience that follows? Are you willing to put that on the altar to gain, to mm. worship the thing good. that you really want? So. That's helpful. So needing that concrete, okay sinning to get it and then boom it's concrete i think it's concrete before that you know if it's your thought life if you're waking up if you're doing it because covetous covetousness is a sin right and 
sometimes the danger of looking for something concrete actually lowers the law. And we're to be pure in thought and word and deed. And the concrete happens before the concrete because the intangible is still sinful. And it's those thoughts that conceive and give birth to the, to the sin that becomes the fruit. So um, if, you're, if you're thinking about it, you know, we're to take every thought captive. We're to judge every, every thought um, because we're not the natural man anymore. We're the spiritual man, and the spiritual man discerns all things. So as I judge myself, I'm able to concretely come to a conclusion that no one else can, that I am coveting something, right? And that's, if I push the boundary a little bit further to where it's concrete to everyone else, I've got a lot of room to play that I shouldn't be playing in. So I just take it a step further. Sure. I I agree with you. My problem as a sinner, someone who sins, is oftentimes I'm blind to my own sinfulness. And so the concrete helps me see it, and then I agree. All sin comes out, out of the heart. And so then I need to look at my sinfulness by way of normally it's somebody, whether it's my wife or somebody that I'm close to, that points out my concrete sin. I can't deny it. I can see it. And I go, wow, I need to ask myself some questions. What is it that I'm wanting so desperately that I'm willing to sin to get it or I'm willing to sin not to get it? So I would agree with you that it, it starts, unfortunately, uh, knucklehead Nick, we can, go, we can go with this terminology, doesn't get it. I'm blind to it oftentimes when it's in my heart. I need the body of Christ to show the, hey, this is definitely a sin. Go ahead. Uh, were you going to say something, Sean? Uh, do we got to? So just as, um, and I'm doing this on the fly, okay? But check me on this, you know, um, systematic theology and thought in here. Um, so just as if we want something so desperately that we'll sin to get it, if, conversely, if our desire is most for God, what virtues will we bring to the table to love him hmm. most as he commands? That's good. Right. Thanks. Working out of our correct identity. All right, let's continue on with our reading. Uh, Starting with transgression. Transgression is deeply immoral, not just because we willingly step over the boundaries of God's law, but more importantly because we give the love of our hearts to things other than God, and because we do, we end up disobeying his commands. Transgression is not just legal rebellion, but also moral unfaithfulness at the deepest possible level. Jeremiah's raw description of Israel's unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery, to God makes that very clear. Sadly, this spirit of unfaithfulness lives in the heart of every sinner. 
All of us are guilty of moral transgression. All of us are spiritual adulterers. None of us has been perfectly faithful to God. All of us have run after other lovers. All of us has, have given our hearts away in some way. All of us has, have stepped over the boundaries of God's law because there is something we love more than him. God's charge against Israel falls on us as well and leaves us guilty before him. Maybe it's giving our eyes to pornography. Maybe it's cheating on our taxes. Maybe it's being bitter and unforgiving in our marriage. Maybe it's patterns of gluttony. Maybe it's a subtle racial animosity. Maybe it's greed and materialism. Maybe it's patterns of gossip. Maybe it's worship of success that has left a legacy of damage behind us. None of us can say that we are not transgressors, that we have never been unfaithful to God or his moral law. So for all of us, hope, hope will never be found in our track record, but only in the grace of the one who, on our behalf, was perfectly faithful in every way. His righteousness and his forgiveness are our only hope. And the thought is for us to consider, can you imagine Jesus never, not even once, uh, loving, uh, loving anything more than God the Father. I should be loves anything, loved anything more than God the Father. Nothing. Absolutely nothing ever became a heart-ruling thing in Jesus' life. And then I'm going to leave this as a rhetorical question. How should, we, how should that reality shape the words you and I pray when dwelling on the person of Christ? I think that uh, I'll leave that to your personal time of devotion and your time of prayer. Let's continue on with the reading. The final word for sin that David uses in Psalm 51 confession is the word sin itself. A popular definition of sin is missing the mark. The picture of an archer aiming at a target and missing it to the right or left every time. I think a better and more biblical way of defining sin is that every arrow of the archer falls short of the target lying in front of I have a crease <laughs> um, um, target our arrows hundreds of arrows representing hundreds of attempts to reach the desired standard and every single one of them falling short at some point it becomes clear that the archer no matter how committed or skilled he is will never pull back the, the string on his bow and hit the target. He is hopelessly unable to do what he is trying to do. The goal stands beyond his ability and desire. He has met a standard he cannot attain. He is simply unable. The Apostle Paul says it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The word sin gets at our moral weakness, our inability to live up to God's holy standard. The condition of sin renders us unable to love God in the way that we, would, that we should and to live in the way that he has commanded us to live. When it comes to sin, it is not just that we will not do what is right, rebellion. We cannot do what is right, inability. <clears throat> Since the effect of sin on us is total, we have lost our ability to live as God has designed. The total effect of sin doesn't mean that we are as evil as we possibly could be, but rather that the damage of sin reaches every aspect of our being and personhood. Sin has left us lame and limping. 
Sin has left us blind and deaf. Sin has left us irrational and foolish. Sin has left us sick and dying. We do not have the power to help ourselves. We cannot reverse sin's damage. We are unable, as the crippled man languishing by the pool of Bethsaida, who had been there 38 years, he had no hope of getting up without divine intervention. If Jesus hadn't said, get up, take your bed, and walk, he would have languished on his mat for many more years. John 5, 1 through 15. Just as he desperately needed the grace of physical healing, we need the grace of spiritual healing. Because of sin, we are not well. He has left us morally weak, unable to be what we are supposed to be and do what we have been created to do. I have just written about the saddest thing that could ever be, ever be put down on paper. My heart is heavy. Sin leaves us impure, condemned, and unable. We are not just found weak, but we are found guilty. We are not unable, we are unwilling. We are not just frail, we are adulterers. Sin is the heart-wrenching drama of humanity. If the biblical story ended here, it would have been the sa- it would be the saddest story ever written. No curse has fallen on humanity that is worse than the curse of sin. What we have considered is the worst thing that could ever happen. But the worst thing is not the final chapter of the biblical story. In the face of this worst thing that could ever happen, the Bible presents us the best thing that could ever happen. Entering the scene is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He came as the second Adam to do on our behalf what the first Adam failed to do. He was perfectly faithful to God. He perfectly obeyed in every way. He took our guilt and bore our penalty. He defeated sin and death. He breathes life into the dead. He is our transgression, our righteousness and redemption. He empowers us by his grace. He is the only answer to the horror of sin. He is the only rock of hope for sinners. There is salvation for sinners. The worst thing that could ever happen to us is not the final chapter, and that is worth celebrating now and forever. How does God empower us by his grace? We'll find out next time when we discuss the doctrine of sin in everyday life. So we read the ugly part of sin this week. Next week we get the encouraging part of the empowering grace that God gives us and what that looks like, how it plays out in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the, uh, the blessing, the coming underneath the truth of your word. I thank you for the interaction by everyone here, some of the, the nuancing and the clarification. We are new creations in Christ Jesus, and that is our identity, Father. And we thank you for the truth and, and desperately grasp onto that truth, Father, recognizing that we still sin and we don't want to sin anymore. Help us by the power of your spirit to sin less that we might glorify you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.